two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Thank you, Rebecca, and welcome to yet another episode of Words and Movies. I'm your co-host, Claude Call. And I'm your other co-host, Sean Gallagher. And this is the first episode we've recorded in 2021. And let's hope that the rest of the year is better than what's happened so far. Yeah. So I think I think this episode's gonna air sometime in like March or April. So I'm sure it's a lovely spring day outside. Yes. <laughs> anyway, um, on today's episode is called Love Maybe, which is a play on the title Love Actually, which ironically I'm not a fan of. But hmm. anyway, uh, the movies we're gonna be talking about today. Uh, Juan Carwai's In the Mood for Love and Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation both involve platonic relationships between a man and a woman that maybe have love going on underneath, but the films never really spell it out. And in addition, both films take place in Asian cities in the Mood for Love is takes place in Hong Kong and Singapore, briefly, while Lost in Translation takes place in Tokyo. Also, in our previous episode, uh, we talked about Stage Door and All About Eve, both of which were movies that were plot-driven and dialogue-driven, and we didn't really talk much about the camera or things like that, or the visual style, whereas both of these movies take the opposite approach. And we'll get into that more deeply when we talk about both movies. But for now, Claude's going to give us the plot description for In the Mood for Love. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because because I had stuff to say about that as well. So, so I'm glad it's on your mind as well. At any rate, uh, we In the Mood for Love, we start off in a Chinese community in Hong Kong in 1962, which you might recall was still in the hands of the British at that time. Uh, Su Li Zhen, who is usually identified in the movie as Mrs. Chen, but I'm going to call her Sue here to keep some of the confusion down. Uh, she's an executive secretary with a businessman husband, and Sue is played here by Maggie Chung. The Chens are renting a room in an apartment. Similarly, a journalist named Chow Mo Wan, played by Tony Lung, is also seeking a room for himself with his wife. But when he discovers that the Chens have already taken the room, the landlady suggests that he try the apartment next door. As it happens, they have an available room too, and he takes it. Now some confusion begins when the two couples choose the same day to move in, and the moving crews are frequently delivering materials to the wrong apartment. Uh, Chow also has a wife who travels frequently, and because the landlords are good friends and spend a lot of time together playing mahjong, both Sue and Chow find themselves alone in their rooms. Now, oftentimes they cross paths with one another, but they don't always interact. But they do speak with one another from time to time, and they develop a kind of friendship. But there is a little bit of a darker side to it as they each begin to suspect that their spouses are having an affair. Not only that, they decide that the spouses are having an affair with each other. This is never quite confirmed for the viewer, but there's a 
pretty big pile of evidence going on there. Uh, so Chow invites Sue to help him write a martial arts serial for the newspapers. Because they're now working together, they're spending more time together, and Sue's absence from the apartment is getting noticed by her landlady. Now remember, it's early 60s Hong Kong, and that's the kind of scrutiny you don't need. This culminates in a scene where Sue and Chow are eating together late one night in his room, and the landlords come back unexpectedly early. So Sue essentially winds up trapped in his room for the entire night, because how would that look? When she finally gets out, she inadvertently leaves a pair of slippers behind. So Chow secures a hotel room where the two of them can work without prying eyes, and the two of them have a lot of conversations about the affair that their spouses are having. They're wondering how it got started, who made the first move, and in one very emotional scene, they essentially reenact the affair in a restaurant by each having the other order food that their spouse would like. So Chow orders food that Mrs. Chow would uh, order, Sue orders food that Mr. Chen would order, and they switch plates. There's another scene which depicts Sue rehearsing uh, her confrontation of her husband about the affair, and it's very emotional in a different way. The two of them agree, however, that while they're starting to catch feelings for one another, they're not going to lower themselves to their spouse's level by having an affair of their own. Chow accepts a job with a newspaper in Singapore, and he asks, uh, Sue to go with him. He waits for her a while and then he leaves and we then see Sue running to the hotel but she's too late to join him. A year later uh, Sue goes to Singapore and visits Chow's apartment but he's not there and it's not clear to me how she got in but okay. Uh, she calls Chow at the newspaper but she doesn't say anything when he answers the phone. She spots the slippers and she takes them. Later on Chow returns home and realizes that someone's been in the apartment but he can't say why because he'd have to explain it's because of the missing slippers but then he sees the lipstick saying cigarette butt that she left behind, and he realizes it was Sue. A short time later, Chow has lunch with a ne'er-do-well friend of his named Ah Ping, who is played by uh, Ping Lam Su, and he starts to talk about the incident, but instead he tells a story about how, in olden times, people who had a deep secret would climb a mountain, cut a hole in a tree, and tell the secret to the hole in the tree, then fill the hole with mud, thus trapping it forever. Ah uh, Ping says, well, you can always tell me, but Chow says, he, he demurs. We jump forward in another few years to 1966. Sue is visiting her former landlady who is about to emigrate to the United States. The neighbors next door have moved away, so she doesn't have anyone to play mahjong with, plus her daughter needs some help with the kids. Sue asks whether the apartment will be available for rental, but the landlady hasn't made up her mind about that. Sometime after that, Chow also returns to the building to visit his former landlord, but discovers that they have emigrated to the Philippines. He asks about the family next door, but he's told that a woman and her son live there now. Chow leaves without knowing that Sue and her son are the woman and the boy in question. Finally, we do another short jump, and this time we're in Cambodia, and my research after watching the movie says that it's early September of 1966. We start off with stock footage of Charles de Gaulle visiting Cambodia, and Chow is there, presumably to cover the event. Chow visits Angkor Wat, and while walking around a ruined monastery, Chow spots a hole in the wall. The camera cuts away to a shot elsewhere in the monastery, and the next time we see Chow, he's got his face up against the wall. A few minutes later, as he walks away, we see the hole again, but this time it's been plugged up with mud. Okay, now before we go anywhere further, let me just mention that Ping Lam Su, who plays uh, Chow's friend Ah Ping, he is actually the prop master on this movie. So that's a bit of a creative cameo here. Now, let's talk first a little, some background about Hong Kong films. 
it seems that every so often, at least as far as I've been tracking film history, there's a part of the world where films become famous, not just in their own area of the world, but also become known internationalists for playing festivals and such, and even gain some headway in the U.S., even though the U.S. is no longer as friendly towards non-English language films as it may have been in the 50s and 60s and 70s, although maybe with Parasite winning Best Picture, that might change. We'll see. But When that happens, usually it's films that are the type of films that would play at an art house theater, either very personal films or films that deal with the country, the place of the world where they come from in an honest way. Now, what made Hong Kong's breakout into the world, at least their films, in the 80s and 90s so different is that most of what broke out were genre films, action films, fantasy films, comedies, things like that. And we'll get into that in a little more detail in a couple episodes from now. But there weren't a lot of art house filmmakers that came out of Hong Kong. And Wong Kar Wai is one of the few and is one of the few who's achieved international recognition as well because his films, although the first few that he did, things like As Tears Go By, which is a kind of a, well, more than kind of a Mean Streets ripoff, and... (laughs) Ashes of Time, which is a martial arts or, as they call it, wuxia film. Those are genre films. They're not like your usual cop, gangster, martial arts movies. They are heavy into mood and character and feeling and theme instead of just about the violence that the characters may do to each other, even though as tears go by, does have quite a bit of violence in it. And so does another film that he did later called Fallen Angels. But he's very much not into making the type of genre movies that were popular from Hong Kong in the 80s and 90s. Instead, he puts his own spin on them. That's that's kind of interesting that you mentioned the the thing about about you know moody um, martial arts films you know because I it was one of the things that kind of came up during the watching this this movie is the the two of them talking about how they enjoy reading uh, serials in the uh, in the newspaper and and by that we're talking about like continuing stories that you have to you know get either the next day or the next weeks or whatever. Um, edition of the newspaper in order to to read the continuing story and that they are particularly interested in and and that that um, that that Chow is interested in writing martial arts serials and I was like how do you do that in print that you know martial arts is is a very visual kind of kind of thing but I guess that would also be sort of a mood piece as much as it would be an action piece so you may have kind of solved a piece of that puzzle for me right now 
it should be said that while one car, why, as I mentioned, is very popular worldwide, um, this his previous film before this, Happy Together, which was about a uh, gay romance that also starred Tony Lung won him Best Director at the Cannes Film Festival the year it played. But not everyone embraces the type of movies that he makes. Um, I have a collection of reviews from Peter Rayner, who is now the critic for the Christian Science Monitor, but at the time in The Mood for Love came out, he was writing for New York Magazine, and he calls Wong Kar Wai a pop schlock seat, <laughs> which is not very complimentary. And basically, he claims that Wong Kar Wai's style is show-offy to hide the fact that he's got no content underneath that, which, needless to say, I disagree with quite a bit, especially in this movie. Now, I know that movies about repressed romantic feelings are not to everyone, not everyone's cup of tea, but when it's done as well as this movie does it, it's hard to complain, I think. You could call this sort of a reverse brief encounter in that Brief Encounter was showing that adulterous affair between a married man and a married woman who are married to other people. And In the Mood for Love is about those spouses left behind. And in truth, when Wong Kar Wai was making this, and this took about a year to actually film and write and everything... He had thought about making it a lot more erotic and a lot more obvious. For example, there's a deleted scene that's available on the Criterion DVD as well as the Criterion Channel webpage that actually has um, Maggie Chung and Tony Lung's characters, Sue and Xiao, sleeping together. Although we only see it through a window that's covered with rain, but we can hear what's going on. But uh, Wong Kar Wai, for whatever reason, decided to cut that out. And while it may have made a better film if he decided to have them sleep together, because there are other hints along the way that the son that Sue is with is actually Chow's and not her husband's, where it's only sort of implied here. But I think it works. Oh, the it way works. it's it, done. It, it works really, really well. I think it would work. I think it works much better than if they had if they had consummated the relationship in that respect. You know, especially in as much as. Um, you know these these are our good guys, okay? And 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 we we haven't brought this up yet. Is you don't see the bad guys in this film. You see, let me back right. off on that. You see, you see Mrs. Chow briefly, but you don't see her face. Right. Um. You only hear their voices, like they're on the phone, or or in one case, Ms. Chow is, is speaking to Mr. Chow. But again, we don't see her face. We see. I think it's from the back, or or just some yes. part of her. Um, yeah. 
and then she leaves the scene. But but that is it. So so we are kind of hung up on being in their shoes for the entire story here, and it's really the the side of um, the 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 side of films that involve adulterous situations that you don't typically see. And the other thing is that it gives extra strength to their the 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 the, the kind of moral position that that these two have taken. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, I, I wrote up my synopsis for the, um, for the film. And then I went back to look something up uh, and, uh, and this, this was just like a half hour ago. And I, I was looking for something and um, I, I stumbled upon Roger Ebert's uh, review for the film. And I clicked on it just out of curiosity. And I don't typically do that before, before we do this show. And in the very first paragraph, Ebert used the exact same word that I did, which I was like, oh, wow, I'm up on his turf now. <laughs> and, and it's specifically, uh, let me, let me I, I have the page here. So he writes, adultery has sullied their lives. His wife and her husband are having an affair. Uh, quote, for us to do the same thing, unquote, they agree, quote, would mean we are no better than they are. And he says, the key word there is agree. And I use the same word, that they agree that they don't want to do this because they they don't want to stoop down to their level. And I was like, well, that's pretty exciting, you know. But but my point being that they have kind of set some sort of bar for themselves, and they're not going to cross that bar. They do a lot of weird things. I don't even, well, yes, there there are some kind of weird things. Like the the dinner thing is a little bit weird, but they also have some very intimate conversations without getting physically intimate. And, and I think it actually ratchets up the, the, the tension of the romance that these two are going through, even as they are not necessarily having what we would consider typically romantic scenes. Right. Now, ironically enough, this is, I think, one of the few, if not the only, Wong Kar Wai movies that Ebert actually fully embraced. You know, he was a director who Ebert respected, had a style of his own, but he couldn't quite get into some of his other stuff. And I would say that, yes, Wan Kar Wai is a director that you have to watch his films more than once to really appreciate. Yeah. And, and this is definitely one of those. Cause the first time mm -hmm. through, I mean, I was more like 15, 20 minutes into the film and I was like, I may have to watch this one again. Cause I don't know that I'm a hundred percent following and stuff started to fall into place. Fortunately for me, but, but yeah, it's, it's a little bit difficult at first, but there's another reason for that, that I think we're going to get to in a couple minutes. Okay. Now um, we should also, or I want to talk about the actors, because one of the other charges that Rayner made in his negative review is that he thinks that Wong Kar Wai is dependent too much on audiences um, being involved with both actors or wanting to be involved with both actors. And it's kind of, well, in the respect that you would watch an American movie with Bill Murray, for example, and know through his past history that the type of roles that he's played and how that informs 
what he's playing in his uh, current movie. And he didn't see the same type of identification with with Maggie Chung and Tony Leung, which to me is a clear signifier that at the time anyway, I don't can't speak to uh, what he may feel now, that Rayner wasn't familiar with Hong Kong movies, specifically the ones that Chung and Leung had appeared in. Now, both of them have appeared in Wong Kar Wai's previous movies. As a matter of fact, Chung was in his very first movie, As Tears Go By. She plays the cousin girlfriend of the main character. And Tony Lung was in the second movie that he directed, Days of Being Wild, which is seen now as part of an unofficial trilogy with Days of Being Wild, In the Mood for Love, and 2046. The significance of that title, I'm going to get back, and the room number that they were staying, that um, Sue and Chow were staying in, and In the Mood for Love, I'm going to get back to in a moment. But he has been, uh, Tony Long, ever since Days of Being Wild, has been a Wong Kar Wai regular not only being in Days of Being Wild, but Ashes of Time and Chung King Express, which is my favorite movie next in the mood for love of his, and Happy Together, as I mentioned before. And with the exception of Happy Together, most of the characters he's played for Wong Kar Wai have been characters who are very nonchalant and carefree on the surface and the emotions that they are churning underneath, he keeps hidden. And you have to depend on his facial expressions to catch what's going on. Happy Together is an exception because in that movie, he's playing a more extroverted and angry character which is understandable given the circumstances of the movie. And that's in contrast to the characters that Maggie Chung has played up to in the mood, had played up to in the mood for love. You know, I knew her best from before I saw as tears go by, which was within the last couple of weeks where she's also playing a more um, downcast or, introverted character, but I know her best from things like the heroic trio and the sequel, The Executioners, where she's playing this loud, almost obnoxious character, action-oriented character, who nevertheless has a hidden heart of gold, if you know where to look for it. And then also in a film that is about the Hong Kong handover from Britain to China called Chinese Box, directed by Wayne Wang, where she plays this disfigured woman who, a dying journalist played by Jeremy Irons, becomes fascinated with. Now, she also appeared in her then-husband's Irma Vep, where she's vamping on um, old silent movies. And I haven't watched that one in a while, 
So I don't remember how um, extroverted and um, energetic that character was. But these are the types of movies that she was playing before in the mood for love that I had seen. So the fact that she's sort of cheering on the surface here as Sue, but also pretty reserved is somewhat of a departure for her. And that works for this movie. Both her style and his style work very well for the characters they're playing here. Yeah, and and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I remember seeing something that it took a very long time for her to get into makeup on a daily basis. And I kind of wondered about that um, until I thought a little bit more about it. And it seemed to me that throughout the film as we moved further and further into the story, and I'm just talking about the 1962 stuff, okay? She appeared to be getting, like, she appeared to be visibly aging through this, like, like she looked older at the, like, a lot older at the end of the 1962 stuff that she did at the beginning. Like, this whole situation was really grinding her down. And then when we see her again in, in, in 66, that, that, she kind of looked back to the way she did at the beginning of the film. Well, could I, I could I be be a little crazy or (laughs) I don't remember that specifically, but I do know that on the criterion channel, they include a press conference that she and Lung did um, at the Toronto film festival. I want to say, and she did confirm that. Yes. She spent a lot of time in the makeup chair. Now, Speaking of her appearance, Mm -hmm. let's talk about some of the elements of the movie. And a huge one are the dresses that she's wearing now. So many dresses. (laughs) Now, um, I'm not going to try and um, pronounce it. Chiangsam, I guess is how it's uh, pronounced. And they had, according to IMDb, 46 dresses that she was wearing throughout the film, although some of them were in deleted scenes. Now, the dress is almost like a combination of a housewife dress and a turtleneck sweater in that it goes all the way up to the neck. And it's not a solid color in that there's always little symbols or something that are... There's a design element to it, yeah. Yeah, that that she wears. And those were the type of dresses that, although they were first designed, I guess, in the 1920s, those were what women of the time were wearing. So that fits. Now, another element that we should talk about here is the food. Food is very important to Wong Kar Wai's movies. We're always seeing characters eat, whether it's in restaurants, in a room, or at an outdoor market. And there are several scenes throughout the movie where Sue and Xiao meet as they're walking up and down the stairs to a noodle market right? where she's getting noodles and he's getting noodles. And that's one of the ways that Wong Kar Wai shows the gradual romantic feelings that are developing 
between the two of them, even if they're not acted out. Right. It's similarly the scene where they um, where they stage the date between their spouses, basically, and, and eat the opposite's food. And, and they coach each other on how the other would would eat it. Oh, well, you know, my wife would use the mustard and, and, and so forth. And the other thing that's kind of interesting there is that's also, I think, the only scene where we see them using Western utensils as they eat. So they are even further out of their element. They're not just it, it's not just that they are eating together and eating you know, what, what they imagine their spouses are eating while they're on the date with each other, but they're also using tools that they don't typically use to eat because every other time we see them, they're using chopsticks. Right. Now, another element that's very important to this movie is the music. Yes. Now, um, Wong Kar Wai has used a variety or has been claimed to have a variety of influences to his uh, movies. Some critics, like or not critics, some fans like Quentin Tarantino, when he um, promoted Shunking Express, which was the first Wong Kar Wai movie to get exposure in the West, I think, he talked about the Godardian elements that he saw in Wong Kar Wai's movies at the time. Whereas Tony Raines, a British critic who's fairly knowledgeable about Asian films, not just Chinese films, but also Japanese films, but he insists that Wong Kar Wai's influences are mostly literary. As a matter of fact, the Maggie Chung confirmed at that press conference that I mentioned that one of the major inspirations for In the Mood for Love was a Japanese short story about a man and a woman who kept passing each other going up and down the stairs, which is why we see that stairway scene. But one thing that everyone seems to agree is an influence for Wong Kar Wai is the music. After all, three of his movies are titled after songs. Um, As Tears Go By is uh, from the Marianne Faithful song, which later was famously covered by the Rolling Stones. And then... Happy Together is the old, the Turtles song. Yes. Another group. And In the Mood for Love, which comes, originally Wong Kar Wai had a hard time choosing the title for this movie. And then he found himself listening to a collection of uh, greatest hits ballads done by both Brian Ferry and Roxy Music. And Brian Ferry is famous for doing covers of all kinds of songs, but mostly quote-unquote standards. And he did a version of I'm in the Mood for Love, which impressed Wong Kar Wai. And so he chose the title In the Mood for Love. And we hear a few standards of by Nat King Cole, although they're translated into Spanish which was the type of music that apparently was being played in 1960s Hong Kong, or at least when 
in the neighborhood that Wong Kar Wai grew up in, so he says, in 1960s Hong Kong. Okay, we need to back up a little bit. The song is written in Spanish. It was translated into English and Italian later on. Well, I assume you're talking about perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. See. But that's not the only song that Nat King Call sings in the movie. Okay, I jumped the gun. Go that, ahead. <laughs> that is um, in the um, movie. There's also... Um, well, they're showing only the Spanish titles for it, so I'm not going to be able to tell you the English title. But the most important piece of music that plays throughout the movie is called Yumeji's Theme. Um, it was composed for a movie by Sejin Suzuki called Yumeji uh, by Shigeru um- Umabayashi. And it's a violin theme, or actually a string quartet theme, I would imagine, that plays during those scenes when they're both getting noodles, as well as other times. And it really sells the melancholy and romantic pull of this movie. Absolutely. And Wong Kar Wai is great at using music for his movies, for bringing you that, getting you inside that romantic pull that he's trying to illustrate in his uh, in his movies. You know, as tears go by, uh, there's the memorable scene where the hero and Maggie Chung's character meet, and there's a. Cantonese cover version of Berlin's Take My Breath Away that plays over when they embrace and kiss each other. And then um, in Shunking Express, one of the characters who's played by a singer, Fei Wang, is wor- works in a noodle shop that's in an open market. And she's obsessed with playing over and over the mama's and the papa's California dreaming. And then we also hear her Cantonese cover of the Cranberries song Dreams, which is also a very romantic song. So he really gets inside that um, the mood that you get when you're listening to those types of songs. I think um, there's a great novel that was made into a good movie, High Fidelity, mm-hmm. where one of the lines in the in both the novel and the movie is, does listening to pop music make me miserable or am I miserable because I listen to pop music? And that's the type of feeling that Wong Kar Wai is going for in most, if not all, of his movies. Yeah, and, and he, he's also not afraid to just return to the music over and over again. And, that, and that's where I was kind of going with, with um, I mean, you, you gave us the, the English translation of, you know, maybe, maybe, but, but it's kiza, kiza, kiza. And, and, and the thing is, that's what we're getting is we're getting Nat King Cole singing the song in Spanish. He's got, by the way, a strong American accent there. But the point being is we keep hearing this snippet, especially in those last mm, 10 minutes of the film, roughly, maybe a little bit more as, as they're doing the near misses, um, with, with the apartment and, and the, um, 
and and then the the visits that they're making and so forth and and you keep hearing this same little snippet of the song over and over again and the song is 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 yeah like you said it's titled it translates into maybe 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 or perhaps 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 but it, but it's basically it comes to the the central theme of is whenever i ask you about things you answer me perhaps 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 and so you know that the song has some significance, even if you don't necessarily understand the lyrics. And then you go back and you look at it and you say, wow, this, okay, this has just a little bit more depth to it because it's got that whole feeling of maybe it's going to happen this time. Maybe they're going to make the connection this time. Maybe they're going to encounter each other this time. Maybe he's going to pass by the door and she's going to open it. And nope, none of that happens. Right. Now... As much as we talk about the filmmaking elements of this movie, we should also mention the fact that, as I alluded to before, Wong Kar Wai is basing this on growing up like he did at the time in um, 1960s Hong Kong, where the two characters and the landlady are living is in an area of Shanghai exiles in Hong Kong. Because again, Hong Kong was under British control at the time. And Shanghai, a lot of Chinese people fled from when the Japanese invaded there um, in the 30s now. So there's a community of people that, are close to each other, but maybe a little isolated from everyone else, which is part of why they're looking out for each other and watching over each other, at least in the apartment house that Sue and Shower are staying in. And that makes it doubly more unlikely that the two of them would be able to carry on an affair without anyone else knowing about it. Right. Cause they're in just this cloistered community, but they're also like, it, it, it was, it was very tight living quarters at the time. There was a, there was basically a housing shortage for Chinese folks in Hong Kong in this Shanghai neighborhood. And, and so that's why you have these, these couples and neither of them are like necessarily destitute. I mean, they both got decent jobs and, 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 all four of the adults in these relationships are working. It's just that the housing wasn't there. And so that's why they wind up taking a single room in a larger apartment. And and it further, and I was I was gonna get to this a little bit later, but we can we can at least start on it now, is this is where you get the 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 deeper sense of the isolation is because they're alone in their rooms, which is a small room is part of a bigger space that they can't go into, which is part of a bigger space, which they're not necessarily welcome in. And I'm talking about, you know, the, the, the city itself, because even when we're out among the city, we're only seeing a couple of streets at a time. You know, we're not out in the broader um, Hong Kong district. We're not, we, we see there's, there's one street not far from the apartment. I think it's just around the corner that we see a lot. It's, and I'm thinking of the street where he has to, where, where, where Chow has to shelter himself from the rain briefly. And, and you see that one street a lot. And then you see the street where the noodle shop is located. And I, as far as I can tell, that's no more than about a block away. But you don't really see much else of the outside world in, in, that these people are living in. 
Yes, and I think both of them shelter from the rain at one point as well. Yeah. In uh, one sequence. Now, we should give credit, of course, to the constriction that the characters feel to the cinematography. Now, most movies, the director does not replace the cinematographer, or at least it used to be. With the advent of digital uh, movies being shot on digital, it's becoming a little more common. But replacing the cinematographer is normally seen as a big deal. However, because of the extended shooting time that this film took, um, Christopher Doyle, who was Wong Kar Wai's regular cinematographer for a while, at least starting from Days of Being Wild, he had to leave. Now, whether or not that was due to other commitments or because he got frustrated with Wong Kar Wai and decided to leave, that depends on who you talk to. At any rate, um, he had to be replaced by Mark Lee, who is best known for shooting movies by... I'm never going to be able to pronounce this guy's name either, but he has uh, done a lot of um, other Chinese movies like... Um, oh, he also shot Wong Kar Wai's The Assassin, but he shot movies like um, Café Lumiere and Millennium Mambo. And he also shot one of my favorite movies of the past decade, Norwegian Wood, uh, directed by a Vietnamese director whose name I'm not going to maybe I will pronounce, and also, um, uh, also, which was also set in Japan, not in Vietnam. But anyway, you get a collision of cinematographer styles here in that when you're out on the streets, you'll get a moving camera, which I guess Christopher Doyle was famous for. And then when you're in the rooms, you'll get a lot of these static um, constricting shots, although there is the scene in the restaurant where the camera pans back and forth between the two characters. But most of the time, it's cuts between the two characters. Yeah. And and, and if I could break in just briefly on that, that scene in the restaurant, some of the pans are coming from the other side. So it's not as though you're going directly from him to her. You're going from somewhere behind him to him and from behind her to her. So you're coming off of them, off of the table, and then onto the the person at the table. Which could... I'm not going to say it is, but it could be a way of another subtle way of hinting their role playing. Mm -hmm. Because remember, at the restaurant, they're pretending to be each each other's spouses. So that's a very subtle point there. And then I mentioned I was going to get back to this now. The room number at the hotel where they... Sue and shall meet to work on his um, martial arts serials is 2046. Now that's 
the name of the last film in that unofficial trilogy that I mentioned of Days of Being Wild in the Mood for Love in 2046, which picks up where this movie leaves off, although it also has a science fiction element to it, 2046 does. However, 2046 is also when China is going to gain complete control of Hong Kong. Right now, it's under control, but there's still a little bit of... Hong Kong still has a little bit of leeway there, even though there's there's some government tension going on right now, current events-wise, and that's all I'm going to say about that. But that's the reason, one of the reasons why he made it that particular room number. So it's... it's- Kind of like an Easter egg, the way you see, um, what is it, A113 in the Pixar movies. Right. Okay. Okay. So um, are there any other things you want to mention on this one before we move on to Lost in Translation? Not strictly on this one. There's something you touched on just a couple minutes ago, but I want to do it in conjunction with Lost in Translation. So I am about ready to move on. Why don't we take a quick break and we will be right back. Don't do drugs, but if you're going to, get a good story out of it. Fear and Loathing in Tacoma is the newest podcast from comedian Jeremiah Coughlin, where he interviews rock stars, comedians, and generally interesting people about their psychedelic experiences. New episodes every Friday. Check it out on Podcast Republic, iTunes, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Sometimes hilarious, sometimes terrifying, Always interesting. This is Fear and Loathing. It is time. Okay, so Claude's now going to give us the plot description for Lost in Translation. I am? Oh, I am. Yes, I am. Okay. So, Lost in Translation, we have Bill Murray as Bob Harris, who is an American actor who appears to be in the twilight of his career. Uh, When we first see him, he's arriving in Tokyo to shoot a commercial for Suntory Whiskey, for which he's being paid what Patton Oswalt would call a sacrilegious amount of money. Uh, He's been married for a long time to a wife who doesn't appear to have a lot of patience with him, and it's just another brick on his midlife crisis pile. He checks into the swanky Park Hyatt Hotel in Tokyo, where he appears to be somewhere between baffled and bemused by everything that's going on around him. We're also seeing Charlotte, who is a young newlywed and recent college graduate, uh, portrayed by Scarlett Johansson. She's also staying at the hotel because she is accompanying her husband, John, played by uh, Giovanni Ribisi, who is a celebrity photographer. We see that they're both jet-lagged and disoriented, you should excuse the expression, and because neither of them uh, have that much to do, Both Bob and Charlotte are spending a lot of time lounging around the hotel. Now, Charlotte does venture out a couple of times, but because she can't talk about it with anyone, she appears to just give up on it. As a result, Bob and Charlotte encounter one another a few times at odd hours, and they finally get better acquainted in the hotel bar. John and Charlotte bump into a celebrity named Kelly, played by Anna Ferris, who is vapid to say the least, and it is pretty clear that Charlotte doesn't think much of her. Kelly is also staying at the hotel, and she tells John that she wants him to do a shoot of her in the near future. One night while John is out of town on an assignment, Charlotte invites Bob to join her in the city to meet up with some friends. They spend the entire night together sampling different versions of the nightlife, including, of course, karaoke, and meeting up with some of the locals. This leads 
to the two of them spending even more of their free time together over their next couple of days. And I should note here that Bob has finished the commercial at this point, but they've asked him to remain in Tokyo for another couple of days to appear on a talk show. So at this point, he has literally nothing else to do until the talk show. And during one sleepless night, Bob and Charlotte have an intimate conversation about their respective marriages and her uncertainty about her future and what she'd like to be. Bob does the talk show, and of course, it's nothing like he expects it to be. And while it probably came off well to the locals, Bob is even more disheartened when he sees the finished product on his hotel TV with the graphics and the peculiar camera work. He goes to the hotel bar that night, and he ends up spending the night with the singer from the lounge, who is played by Catherine Lambert. And so far as I can tell, we never learn her name. Uh, The next morning, Charlotte pops by his room, and she hears the lounge singer in the bathroom, which leads to a rather tense lunch between Charlotte and Bob later that day. That night, they bump into one another once again. Bob tells Charlotte that he's leaving the next day, and the two of them reconcile, going to the hotel bar once again. They see each other once more, and they say some rather unconvincing goodbyes, but a little bit later... Bob gets into a taxi to the airport, but he spots Charlotte on a crowded street, and he has the cab driver stop the car. He goes out after Charlotte, he gives a more sincere hug, and he whispers something into her ear that we can't hear except for the exchange at the very end, with him asking her okay, and her responding okay. The two then kiss one another, and Bob gets into the cab, and we follow the cab for a little while as the sun starts to go down, and the lights of Tokyo start to come on. Okay, now... As with In the Mood for Love, Sofia Coppola was basing this movie on personal experience. Um, when she directed her first movie, The Virgin Suicides, which, by the way, also had Giovanni Ribisi serve as narrator for the film. Um, when she was promoting The Virgin Suicides, she spent some time at that Hyatt Hotel in Tokyo. And she wrote the movie partially inspired by that trip and also partially inspired by the fact that her father, Francis Ford Coppola, had done commercials for Suntory Whiskey back in the 70s or 80s, I forget when, And also the fact that her marriage at the time to filmmaker Spike Jones was apparently not as happy as she wanted it to be. Now, we're going to get this out of the way first so that we can concentrate on the rest of the movie. Uh, Depending on who you talk to, Kelly who's very well played by Anna Faris, is a slam on Cameron Diaz, (laughs) who had appeared in Spike Jonze's first movie, um, being John Malkovich, and done a very good job in that movie, I should add. She was even nominated for Best Supporting Actress. But um, Kelly although it's not made as clear in the theatrical version as it is in a deleted scene, is there in Tokyo to promote an action movie that she's in. I think it's called Mustang, which is very much like Charlie's Angels. And Kelly is definitely playing into the 
airhead persona that Cameron Diaz played in Charlie's Angels as well as in a few other movies. Um, that's the type of thing that Charlotte is uh, getting impatient with, you know, for the fact, for example, that she's checked into the hotel under Evelyn Waugh, right. which is the name of a male writer. But anyway, so Coppola, for what it's worth, has denied it that the character is based on Cameron Diaz. But as I said, there are a couple clear indicators, and we'll leave it at that. Now, yeah, that, that's fair. Go enough. ahead. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, I mentioned when we were talking about In the Mood for Love about actor identification. And I found a lot of actor identification, as I said before, with Maggie Chung and Tony Lung having seen a, a few of their movies before um, seeing In the Mood for Love. And there's a couple other Tony Lung movies, which I'm going to talk about in a couple episodes from now. But I think many, if not most Americans who saw Lost in Translation could tell you a lot about Bill Murray's career up to this point. You know, he had been one of the early stars of Saturday Night Live, not in the first season, but he replaced Chevy Chase in the second season. And we actually see him watching a Saturday Night Live bit on TV one night in his hotel room, although it is dubbed into Japanese. And then he broke out into movies in the late 70s and in the 80s. And most of them were blockbuster type things, or at least very big hits, you know, like Meatballs, Stripes, uh, Ghostbusters, Scrooged, although he personally himself was not happy with it. That was a big hit. And then uh, Groundhog Day in 1993. But after that, at least as far as his starring roles went, he hit sort of a snag. You know, he was in uh, Larger Than Life and The Man Who Knew Too Little, but neither of them were hits with critics or audiences. And it seemed like he was getting dissatisfied with acting and with Hollywood. And ironically, it was in supporting roles that for the most part, he was really stretching himself and doing good work. I'm not a big fan of Mad Dog and Glory, which came out the same year as Groundhog Day, but he was very good as the gangster there playing against type. And then you'd also saw him in um, Ed Wood as a transgender character, and he's good in that. And then in Wild Things which is an insane erotic thriller. He plays the most normal character in the movie, which tells you what kind of movie he is. And he's playing a, you know, unscrupulous lawyer in it as well. And then in 1998, he took a supporting role in Rushmore, Wes Anderson's second and breakthrough movie. And that sort of rejuvenated his career, but most of what he was doing in that was supporting roles. So Lost in Translation was his first leading role that really made an impact since Groundhog Day. 
And you've got him doing some of his comic persona in the fact that he's got some very deadpan reactions Mm -hmm. to what's going on. For example, that whole scene where he's doing the photo shoot with the whiskey and his reactions to what they're telling him, you know, make it like the Rat Pack, things like that. But he's also going a lot deeper dramatically than he had done before. Um, He had tried doing um, a more dramatic role in the 80s with the the remake of The Razor's Edge, which I like more than most people, but I will admit it's not a completely successful film. And it seemed like he didn't have the life experience to completely... Um, do something like that. But in Lost in Translation, he does have that life experience and you can tell from his performance here. Yeah, I, I well, yeah. And, and just to come back to Razor's Edge, he got creamed for that film. I remember when, when it first came out. And, and you know, it, it, oh my gosh, folks, it wasn't that bad. But, uh, you know... But but yeah, he 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 took a lot of heat for having done that. I one. Th- yeah, I think part of the problem for that was there's always a certain segment of critics who, if a comic actor does something quote unquote serious, they they always get huffy and say, "How dare they? Why isn't getting laughs good enough?" I mean, part of that anger may come from the fact that comedy isn't taken as seriously as it should be in some circles. But to turn it around like that is unfortunate, to say the least. Right. I think the other thing to to bring up is is you you talk about like that that comic side and the deadpan bit coming coming through a little bit more during the photo shoot. As I recall, a lot of that scene was ad lib on his part. Where where the director well, was kind of the director was was of the of the commercial was kind of like firing at him in Japanese and and the translator wasn't being especially helpful and every once in a while if I understand correctly um, Coppola was kind of feeding the director the occasional phrase to throw at him and so that he would all of a sudden have to react to Roger Moore or Rat Pack that kind of thing right well Coppola wrote a very short screenplay, relatively speaking. It was more of an outline. And she did write the part for Murray. And so she knew going in that Murray was the type who'd want to improvise. So she encouraged that a lot. Mm -hmm. Now, we'll get back to the photographer uh, moments in a bit when I talk about one criticism of the movie that's come up but for now i want to address the other actor in the movie scarlett johansson now arguably this was her first real grown-up role you know some might say the supporting role she did in ghost world was sort of a grown-up role. But again, that was a supporting role. That was Thora Birch's movie, not Johansson's. But early on in her career, there was always something that was interesting about Johansson and how much self-possession she had and how 
she was always looking at adults and maybe getting things more than they did at times or wondering about them more than characters her age normally would. That came from the very first movie that I saw her in, Manny and Lowe, where she plays one of two sisters. I think Alexa Palladino played the other who kidnap this uh, woman when the older sister uh, gets pregnant. And it's pretty clear from the movie that Scarlett Johansson's character is the one who is the most grown up, not her older sister. Mm -hmm. And there's, as I said, and I was right, it is Alexa Palladino. As I said, there was this reserve about her that was very intriguing. And some of that comes from her eyes. And then some of that also comes from her voice, which is husky to say the least. Now, in her um, next major movie, The Horse Whisperer, directed by Robert Redford, she was playing a character who was more openly emotional than she did in Manny and Lowe. And I don't know if she was quite comfortable with that because her character um, gets into a horrific accident that breaks her leg and um, injures a horse and also kills her best friend. And the part of the movie is about how she has to confront that, what happened in order to move on. But in the movie, you also see her um, staring accusingly at her mom, played by Kristen Stott Thomas, and also looking with bewilderment and curiosity at Robert Redford, who plays the title character in the movie, who's treating her horse. So again, you've got that self-possession there. And that also comes through here, except again in a grown-up role. You know, she's married although she's not sure what she wants to do with her life. She's got opinions about things, you know, which put her in conflict with her husband. And she's able to talk, hand, or Charlotte is able to talk more candidly and intimately to Bob in a way that she's not able to talk to um, her husband or anyone else in the movie, but even when she's talking to Bob, you always see that reserve that she's got. Yeah, even there's even that scene where she's starting to break down and she calls her mother and she's trying to get across to her mother that she's having a hard time and mom's not getting it either. And and finally she gives up and all right, I'll I'll just, you know, I'll talk to you later on and, and I'll call you when I get back. Something like that. And 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 so you know, there, there, and and which is a lot of her. She's carrying a lot, and she was what about 17, 18 when she made this film, right? You know, and and yeah, she really, really pulls some weight in this film. She she really carries off, you know, just the 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 feeling behind the face that that is needed 18. for the film. Eighteen, yeah, okay, yeah. So I I knew she was still pretty young, and 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 yeah, mm-hmm. she's playing a youngish character, but. There is definitely a difference between, you know, an 18-year-old woman and a 22, 23-year-old woman that she's portraying here in the film. Right. Now, um, now we should get back to what I mentioned 
with the uh, photography scene. Um, one charge against the movie that deserves some discussion here is the way it portrays the Japanese. Now, there is one very unfortunate scene where a prostitute comes up to Bob's room, yeah. and that is... That is definitely a racist uh, scene. However, I would argue, and again, I have to put on the disclaimer that I am a white guy, um, but I would nevertheless argue that what we're seeing here is Japan as the as Bob and Charlotte view it. And Bob is a middle-aged guy who is not sure he want, he doesn't want to be there at all as he tells Charlotte the first time they meet each other in, or the first time they actually talk to each other, I should say, in the bar. The first time they meet each other is when he sees her in an elevator. elevator yeah. But he talks about the fact that he could be doing a play instead of being here doing this whiskey commercial. And so he's not very receptive to what's going on around him in Tokyo. He sees everybody there as strange. It's only as the movie goes on that he starts to loosen up. You know, you've got that great scene in the hospital waiting room after Bob takes Charlotte there because earlier in the movie, she drops something on her toe and it looks very bad. And so he brings her to the hospital and he's with this old woman who's sitting next to him. And even though they can't understand anything they're saying to each other, there's obviously some sort of connection there. They're having a beautiful, beautiful conversation and neither of them understands the other one. Yes. And you can see how the women who are sitting behind the two of them are very amused by what's going on as well. While at the same time, When Charlotte goes out into the city, um, she may be a little disoriented and alienated as well, but there's a more respectful view of what's going on. You know, she goes into what I think is a temple. Yeah. At one point. And then also you see her in a, a Tokyo garden and everything there is depicted um, respectfully, I think. Now, it is true that the, the karaoke scene, which I'm going to get back to in a little bit, as well as the Japanese talk ho- show that Bob appears on, you know, you've got these characters being very over the top. And so is the director of the Suntory whiskey commercial that Bob has to deal with. And yeah, that is kind of a stereotype, but I will admit from my um, admittedly limited exposure to Japanese culture, I have seen those characters from time to time. So they're not exceedingly far off from the real thing. And again, you have to take into account you're seeing this from Bob and Charlotte's point of view as well. 
Right. And and that's the thing that, that you've got to understand is, is that, that it's a point of view kind of thing. And it's not necessarily like, here's what Japan is about. It's it's really like, here's how these people are experiencing Japan. And and I, I don't know, I think that comes through almost right away when you, when you have those opening scenes with Bob in the taxi and he's just like bewildered because it is nighttime. It's late at night as, as he's headed toward the hotel and he is just looking out the windows and Everything is just bright, bright, bright neon and, and lights and signs and, and, and flashing and, and that kind of thing. And the most serene image that he sees as he's looking out the window is this gigantic billboard with his own face on it. And it's like one of those things where he doesn't really want to look at it, but he can't really look away because it's about the only calm thing that's out there for him to look at. And, and, right. And, and, and so that's his initial impression of, of Tokyo. And so I think everything that follows for the time being is going to be equally frenetic to him. You know, whether it's whether it's the, 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 the ad director, whether it's going to be the the um, the various uh People from the ad agency that are, that are meeting up with him, who, who, and 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 with the with the uh, the prostitute that comes up to his room, you know, just everything is looking way, way, way over the top to this guy until he learns to relax into it just a little bit when he spends that night out with Charlotte. And even then, it's still a little bit crazy. You got that one Japanese guy who's yammering along at him in French. So now you've got like a dual translation that he's losing out on. But he's just, he's kind of there and he's with it and he, he gets in there and when it comes to be karaoke time, he'll get in there and, and sing a couple of songs. It's kind of weird that he's like, you know, a couple of, of keys too low for, uh, oh, what was the song he was singing? The second uh, one. Roxy Music's More Than This. More Than This. He was just way off key for that. It was like he was singing the melody correctly, but but Brian Ferry is like so much higher than he is in that song. And, and so... Again, it's like he's he's making the effort and he's just not quite there for it. Okay, so let's talk about the karaoke scene because this is one of the two most famous scenes in the movie. Um, and this is an example of how Sofia Coppola, like Wong Kar Wai, considers music to be a very important part of the movie not to spell things out, but to establish mood. Most of the music that is in the movie up to this point and then afterwards is instrumental music. Um, there is a piece of music called the uh, Fantino by a guy named Sebastian Tellier uh, that, ha for example, that plays, I think in one of the scenes where Charlotte is walking around Tokyo, and it's got this vibe of Pink Floyd, early 70s, before Dark Side of the Moon. Mm -hmm. But in the karaoke scene, um, we get more, obviously, more lyrically uh, fraught music there. First, we've got the Japanese guy singing the Sex Pistols' God Save the Queen. Right. And then Murray comes up to sing. Now... If you remember from his Saturday Night Live days, one of the recurring characters he did was Nick the Lounge Singer. Right. And who always had a different last name depending on where he was performing. Right. And I don't know about you, but when the first time I saw this movie, 
I had a similar vibe to um, John Travolta in Pulp Fiction when he does participates in the Jackrabbit Slim's Twist Contest uh, with uh, Uma Thurman's character. You know, is he going to riff on his most famous dancing character, Tony Manero in Saturday Night Fever? Or is he going to do something else? And Tarantino, instead of riffing on him, shows Travolta dancing, but like a character his age and his adult state of mind would mm-hmm. instead of trying to make a throwback, which unfortunately Travolta did the throwback in the sequel to Get Shorty, Be Cool with Uma Thurman. And the less said about that, the better. <laughs> but anyway, getting back to Lost in Translation, Bob Harris gets up and sings um, Nick Lowe's by way of Elvis Costello's What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding. And he really belts that out instead of doing the ironic camping it up that Nick the Lounge singer did. And he's doing it as a guy his age might sing it, which would partially explain why he's singing more than this in such a lower register of voice, lower octave of a voice, probably because he screamed his way through the earlier song. And then after that snippet, you see Scarlett Johansson or Charlotte singing the Pretender's Brass and Pocket. Mm-hmm. And that's followed by More Than This. Now, Brass and Pocket and More Than This are two of the great love songs ever written that never mention the word love in them. Mm-hmm. And they're both about longing, longing for someone else. And so that totally fits the mood here. And you can see the way the two of them look at each other when they're watching the other one perform the feelings that are starting to develop between the two of them. Right. And the other thing is that the the two songs are, are actually more or less contemporary to one another even if the characters are not. And so it's another connection that, that the two have with one another. Um, I, I want to jump back to, to something else and, and kind of link it to, um, to In the Mood for Love here is, is the fact that in both of these films, you've got this male and female character who are isolated in their own ways, okay? So um, Charlotte and Bob are, are, are isolated by, by the fact that there is a language barrier going on and that they are you know, generally far away from their spouses, you know, even, even when, even when John's in the same room with Charlotte, he's not necessarily there with her, you know, he's always got something else on his mind and he's just getting ready to go off to the next assignment. Um, But the other thing that I've noticed is in Lost in Translation, okay, we get the isolation through generally very, not, not very, but, but long shots. And when I say long, I'm saying like, where you are further away from the character. So they are relatively small in the frame. So it's, you, there are several scenes of, of Charlotte sitting in the window and looking out on, 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 on Tokyo. Uh, and, 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 or, or you're far down the hall and you see one of the characters walking down the hallway. We're, we're distant from them, okay, as they are distant from everybody else. As opposed to 
in the mood for love where it's a very claustrophobic kind of feel. They are alone, but they're alone in this tight, tight space. And and so and, and I think that might have been the thing that that contributed to, as I said earlier on, you know, my initial confusion of what what's going on in this in this film is because everything was so close up. Everything was so tight. You know, people were like blocked by by elements of of what, what else was going on in the room. And that kind of you didn't see everything of everybody. And I'm not entirely sure that it, with a couple of exceptions in in the mood for love you ever saw like full body shots of anybody you know as opposed to lost in translation where you got plenty of those but more often than not when those people were alone you saw almost all of them or most of them and and i think the closest up shot of somebody being a lonely person i mean there were a couple of times when when charlotte's in the window and it started out with kind of a close-up of her face but then it immediately cut to a further away shot would have been that opening shot of the film, which we haven't really touched on yet. And it, no. it, it and and basically what it is is not not especially close up, but it's basically from about her her knees to maybe just under her rib cage, a view of her from the back lying on a bed, and there is just a curtain behind her. So you don't really see anything. She's not necessarily looking out the window, and she's wearing these more or less translucent panties. And some kind of shirt. And we just hold on that shot for, it's got to go for at least 30 seconds. It's a long, long time where you have to be, it, it's enough to make you uncomfortable to, why, why are we staring at this girl's butt for so long? Because you, yes, you can see like her, her the butt, uh, the crack of her butt through, through the underwear. And I, I've heard where some people have compared it to, um, there was a, there was a, Bridget Bardot movie in the first scene we see in her, she's nude on a bed lying down, uh, face down. Contempt. Contempt, yes. And but there's also somebody else in the bed with her in that in that scene. Um, but in fact, there is a painting that you see in the hotel, which looks very much like that opening shot. Am I crazy or did I see that painting? I do not remember that painting, to be honest. Mm. But we should mention that the cinematographer for Lost in Translation was Lance Acord, who ironically also shot being John Malkovich. Mm -hmm. But um, he was responsible for a lot of the long shots. And then also he and Coppola decided to use a lot of natural light in uh, this movie. Yeah which uh, also helps establish the mood. Now, one last thing I want to talk about in the relationship between the Bob and Charlotte is the way it's set up here. Even though there's nothing romantic that happens between them, at least not shown until that final kiss at the end, um, when Bob ends up going to bed with the lounge singer, who, by the way, is a real singer that Coppola found in uh, found in a hotel bar one night, and she is listed in the credits as jazz singer. So she doesn't have a name, okay? <laughs> no, but what's interesting about it is that even though he's technically cheating or not technically, he is cheating on his wife with the singer. The way Coppola presents it is that 
he's cheating on Charlotte Absolutely. by sleeping with her. And that's an interesting uh, element that she puts in. The fact that they're so close or have become so close through the course in the movie that this act strains their relationship. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and that's pretty much the way it's framed throughout that scene. He wakes up, he realizes what's happened. He's like, oh my God, you know, and you could see the, the, the look in his eye and I, you can you can somehow tell he's not necessarily worried about you know how his wife would react to this but then there's the knock on the door and he realizes there can only be one person knocking on that door and he bolts out of the bed I'm gonna get it you know to, to answer the door and he figures he can cover this up until the singer starts actually singing in the bathroom and then it's all over and you see you see a look cross charlotte's face where oh this is the way it's going to be a eh? you know and then she has to get in like a little zing on on his age and that sort of thing before she before she takes off and and uh and, and so yeah it's 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 framed that way as far as he's cheated on her even though they haven't necessarily done anything especially in as much as it wasn't that long ago where the two of them shared a bed together and didn't touch one another and it's a beautifully framed shot by the way with the two of them lying in the bed because both of them are having this very intimate conversation and at the same time they're each lying with one arm across their bodies so they're still kind of like defending themselves against something that could or could not happen at that point right and the I mentioned before that dialogue is not the approach that both of these movies take, that they're more dependent on looks. But the dialogue is well done in both of these movies and never more than in that scene in the bed. Although um, I'm not the biggest fan, but Robert McKee did a book where he talks about good dialogue and bad dialogue from movies. And he cited the scene where Bob and Charlotte first talk to each other in the bar as an example of very well-written movie dialogue between two characters because of the subtle way that he's trying to make, Bob is trying to make a pass at Charlotte and the subtle way that she turns him down and the way that he backs off gracefully. Right. And you know what's also interesting? That's the first time that the two of them are talking to one another. We never see them introduce themselves. I mean, well, he's a famous guy, so she should know who he is. But you'd still think they would go through that little bit of formality. And uh, no, we don't see that happen. Right. So that's... Well, there's one influence I'm going to save till the very end, but, um, or rather when we talk about what's coming up in the next episode, but that sort of shows the European influence of that Coppola drew on. Uh, Specifically, um, as I saw her mention in one interview, Antonioni movies, Mm -hmm. which also explain the landscape uh, shots. And Antonioni is another filmmaker whose uh, films are difficult to get into on a first viewing. And while this one is a little more accessible, it's got the same vibe as 
in the fact that it's treating the audience with respect, not spelling everything out to them as well. And no other way illustrates that more than that final scene when uh, Bob is whispering into Charlotte's ear. Um, There was originally dialogue that was uh, written for that, but then Coppola discarded it and told Murray to say whatever he wanted. It was was kind of banal dialogue anyway, wasn't it? It was like, yeah, I'm going to miss you and I'm going to miss you too. And that pretty much was the end of it. Right. So Coppola decided to leave it up to the uh, viewer to decide what he was saying. Okay. And that was the smart choice, I think. Yeah, it was. It was a really smart choice. I, it, it might have left a lot of people frustrated, but you know what? Too bad. You know, but but I'm going to put you on the spot just a little bit here. Do you okay. think they contact each other ever again? Actually, I do. You know, they may not. Um, it may have fall off after a while, but I do think they uh, contact each other again. Now, one last bit of trivia I want to bring up. Um, Bob Harris, um, Murray, apparently partly partly based, or at least Bob Harris uh, doing the whiskey commercials, uh, he partly based on Harrison Ford. He saw a shot, a photograph of Ford advertising a Asian um, alcoholic drink. I forgot what it was. Uh, as Hollywood actors have done from time to time. You know, they do European or Asian commercials uh, for extra money. And he apparently saw the expression on Ford's face, which was, uh, get me the bleep out of (laughs) here. Why am I even doing this? Even if it is sacrilegious money, as you put it earlier. And so that was the vibe that Murray was going for when doing these Centauri commercials. And also, I guess the character Bob Harris is sort of based on Charles Bronson as well. And the fact that he's doing these, uh, it was known, believe it or not, Bob Harris was as an action star. Right, it's only briefly referred to, but that that he had done action pictures. I think she was, she was. They had a conversation where she was asking if he did his own driving in one scene. Uh, actually, it's also alluded to when we first see him in the bar, and there are two guys. That's right. They had seen they had seen film theater. Recognize that's him. right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'll, 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 have... I'm just gonna I'm just gonna bring up one other thing here. It, is it's it's funny that that you mention you know Harrison Ford, if only because I thought you were going to say. Sean Connery, which would be Harrison's Ford cinematic father from the Indiana Jones, because Sean Connery did, in fact, do an ad for Suntory Whiskey in Japan. Yes, as did, as I mentioned, Coppola's father, Mm -hmm. Francis Ford Coppola. Right. Okay, so to wrap this up, um, In the Mood for Love is available for streaming if you subscribe to HBO Max. Um, the Criterion Channel, which is how I was able to watch it, or Canopy, while Lost in Translation is available to 
Um, Substream if you subscribe to Amazon Prime and is also available to rent or buy on most streaming networks, including Apple TV, Amazon, and Google Play. Cool. So what's coming up next? Okay. Well, as I mentioned or alluded to before, I had one thing I was saving till the end. Go for it. Lost in Translation was not, strictly speaking, of course, a remake of In the Mood for Love, although Coppola has admitted that it was a big influence. And as a matter of fact, when she won the Oscar for uh, Best Original Screenplay, one of the filmmakers that she thanked, including Antonioni, was Wong Kar Wai. However, throughout Hollywood history, there have been a number of times when they have remade non-English language movies. And the results, to put it mildly, can be very hit and miss. And that's even if the same person who directed the original directs the English language remake. Um, I don't know about you, but I never want to see the remake of The Vanishing ever again, for example. (laughs) However, there have been times when the... Um, English language remake of a non-English language movie has been at the very least interesting to watch and as a matter of fact been pretty good maybe not measure up to the original but worth watching so the next four episodes we're going to discuss some of those interesting and good English language remakes of non-English language movies and we're going to start off with Abre Los Ojos, or English title, Open Your Eyes, and directed, written, directed and co-written by Alejandro Amenabar, and the English language remake, Vanilla Sky, written and directed by Cameron Crowe. Right. And if you want to watch Open Your Eyes, it is available on Tubi TV, which I think has commercials in it. Um, It's also available on an Amazon service called Pantea, which is an extra five or six bucks a month if you are interested in that. It's also available for uh, purchase or rental through most of the usual suspects. And similarly, Vanilla Sky, uh, all of these are going to have ads. It is available on uh, imdbtv.com, Pluto TV, Crackle, and Popcorn Flicks. All of those have ads. And then, again, for purchase or rental. And there are some outlets where Vanilla Sky is actually uh, fairly inexpensive for purchase, even in the 4K version. So if you like that film, this might be a good time to take advantage. Right. And you can always contact us with a question or comment through the email address, wordsandmoviespod at gmail.com, and you can find me, Sean Gallagher, on Facebook. You can find the show on the Twitter machine at words underscore movies pod. I don't know why it looks like that, but it does. Uh, You can find me, Claude Call, on Twitter, at Claude Call. You can also find me at my other podcast, How Good It Is, which you can locate at howgooditis.com, where you can find all the links to the rest of the world. All right, so we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. Take it away, Rebecca.
This is your announcer, Rebecca Blackman, with the closing credits. This show was produced by Sean Gallagher and Claude Call, with editing and post-production by Claude, with some help from Ophonic. Audio clips are used under fair use rules for commentary and educational framing. Everything else is copyrighted by Claude Call and Sean Gallagher. The theme music you're bopping along to right now is by Solar Flare and is used under a Creative Commons license. Podcast hosting is provided by Anchor.fm. If you want to support the show, go to anchor.fm slash wordsandmovies and click on the support link. Who knows? Maybe they'll even kick a few bucks my way. Thanks for listening. <laughs>